This program is brought to you by Emory University. My name is Lynn Nygaard. I'm the director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture, and we're delighted to have this group of scholars talk about um, the performance of language. So, Caitlin Hargraves is a lecturer in acting in the Department of Theater and Dance. Theater studies in the Department of yeah, Theater and Dance. Yes. Sorry, we'll clear um, that up for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, Caitlin's a professional actor who recently moved to Atlanta. Um, I'm doing very brief introductions. So um, she completed her MA at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. Um, Lisa Paulson is the chair and senior lecturer in theater studies, resident actor, director, and director of Playwriting Center at Theater Emory. And um, uh, Lisa joined the theater studies faculty um, in 2001 and has been a part of creating this co-teaching model for playwriting that sounds extremely interesting um, in conjunction with the creative writing faculty. Susan Tomasi um, is the director of the program in linguistics and professor of pedagogy uh, program in, in the program in linguistics and associate fa associated faculty both in the Center for Study of Human Health and in the Department of Anthropology. I did not realize that. I'm all over the place. <laughs> um, so Susan's interest lie in the field of linguistic variation, as this will come up, right? <laughs> and how variation in American English dialects connect to social and political issues. All right. So um, uh, the, the title of our discussion is The Performance of Language, Exploring the Intersection of Language, Mind, Emotion, and Theater. So um, I'm going to let you guys... Take it away. So we thought we um, we would just tell you just briefly like what got us started on this conversation and what we're kind of searching for in our discussions together because we're hoping that this will be a kind of a continuation of that. Um, and then also and then ask each of you to introduce yourself so we have a sense of where people are coming from and what their interests are. Um, so we we're interested in... Uh, what possibilities there might be in especially pedagogy of linguistics and theater students um, in the subject of dialects and accents, mostly around dialects. Um, we, we both teach it. It's an important part of both fields. Um, and so we believe that there could be some benefit to students who are studying uh, dialects for different purposes and in different ways by maybe there would be a way for them to be able to have some shared experiences that would benefit both groups. So that's the question that we're we're investigating together right now. We haven't got the answer yet. We haven't got the class designed, but that's what we're that's what brought us together to have these conversations. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And and also see how that fits in with what other people are doing, what other people are thinking and how we can pull lots of people together. Mm -hmm. for this. Do you want to say anything else about what we're here to do? Just that um, it, in these conversations, it sort of struck me. Uh, it's one of those things that oh, of course, we're studying the same thing. How, where, how are, where are our crossovers, right? And I think through the couple of conversations we've had so far, we discovered that the crossovers are are bountiful, and as would be the the results of this of this intersection of different students coming together and being able to really benefit from the different ways that we approach dialects. Um, 
and without ever having realized, I mean, you know, in my own professional life um, outside of academia, without ever having realized I've, I've approached dialect work from a linguistics point of view without ever having known it. And I would have liked to know that. <laughs> so it was just really fascinating how many different crossovers we have and how beneficial that could truly be to students. So I, with that, we'd like to just pause on the, that discussion for a minute and just make sure we know who's in the room and where you're coming from. If you wanted to say something about why this is of interest to you and your work, that's fine. Um, so can we start over here? Sure. I'm sorry to be late. It's always a challenge for me to find this building. Uh, I work in the business school in the organization and management group, and I study language and cultural organizations. Hmm. Oh, that's great. And, and your name? Not very efficiently, but Özge uh, Kochak. Uh, Martin Norbart, I'm a professor of music education at Georgia State. Uh, I study musical improvisation and also um, have some work in uh, hopefully being published very soon that's uh, comparing music and language in various aspects. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, interested in improvisation specifically in motor patterns, one of my main interests. Mm -hmm. so, so patterned language and patterned music is very interesting to me, and, and I think that's going to tie into the discussion about dialects. Great. That's interesting. And I'm Diedrich Stout. I'm the uh, associate director here at the, uh, the center and a uh, uh, paleolithic archaeologist in the anthropology department, and one of my areas of research has to do with uh, language origins and evolution. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, hi, I'm Jessica Waman. I'm in the philosophy department. Um, I teach philosophy of mind, so it's part of the connection to the um, center. But also, uh, I write, I've written on philosophy and theater, so, um, and I have a, a bit of a theater background that has nothing to do with my philosophy background. But so, And I've got a student in my philosophy of mind class who's thinking about doing a final project on her, based on her experience in language acquisition and neurobiology, and I just thought, you know, we got theater, we got mind, we got language, I'm just going to come and see what I can pick up. I'm Robin Fadish, I'm the director of the Institute for the Liberal Arts, so I'm just generally interested in interdisciplinary <laughs> conversations. Um, but more specifically, in my own research, I work on narrative identity, and I'm really interested in how identity is expressed through narrative. I work mostly with written narratives, but even in written narratives, voice comes through. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in mm -hmm. how we perform our identity, whether it's orally or in writing through narrative. That's what we're interested in. <laughs> Theater. Uh, I'm Rachel Stewart. I'm a third-year PhD student in the Graduate Division of Religion. I'm in the Hebrew Bible course of study, so obviously language is a pretty key feature of my life. Um, I'm interested in theater from also totally unrelated to my discipline mm. background. I'm deeply interested in cognitive linguistics and been trying to get to a CNBC lunch since the entire time I've been here. So <laughs> <laughs> finally made it. Okay. That's great. We have a certificate program. generally interested in uh, spoken language perception, um, how we as humans understand different voices and the processes that come along with that. In my work, I am particularly interested in particular differences that stem from differences in complex voices and, and their foreign accents.
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I'm Lisa Dillman. I'm in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. I am uh, partly just interested in interdisciplinary um, conversations in general. Um, I also found all of the backgrounds of the people here to be quite fascinating. And also in my work in literary translation, um, I've translated some theater. Um, and I always find translating um, accents as something that's particularly challenging and the implications of trying to find an analogous accent that one might represent in a different language. I'm Tamara Beck. I'm the program coordinator, so I'm the person that sends you all emails. <laughs> 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 and maybe ordered us this lovely lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Makes everything happen. Yes. I'm Laura Edwards. I'm a postdoc in uh, the School of Medicine Marcus Autism Center. I study educational interventions for kids with autism. Language acquisition comes up a lot in that. Um, and I have been particularly interested in pivoting a little bit to study specifically performing arts based interventions for kids with autism because outside of academia, I do some acting myself, and I actually just closed a play for which I had to develop a New Jersey accent. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear about the, the, the more um, official, like if I were in school for this, how I would go about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My name is Megan Young. I'm a second year undergraduate at the college studying psychology and film and media. And um, like the people here, I'm also interested in like interdisciplinary stuff. But I also wanted to make it to a CNBC event, so I finally made it as well. <laughs> Peter Wakefield, faculty member in the ILA, so generally interested in interdisciplinary matters. Also came to see you guys, some of my friends on the panel here. Uh, my background is actually in ancient philosophy, so it includes a lot of philology. So I'm interested in that dimension. But uh, more specifically, I'm always looking for new inspirations along the lines of thinking of theater and classrooms and that intersection. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. My name is Brian Dobosh. I'm a bit of an outsider. I'm a third year PhD student in the immunology program. Mm -hmm. um, I, in a, many years ago, I did work in a neuroradiology lab looking at uh, how language declines um, and HIV-related uh, cognitive decline patients. Um, but now I just study how the body reacts to viruses and pathogens. And, uh, tries to curb disease. Glad I can still make this up. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to increase the diversity of what I'm hearing. Cool. Uh, hi, I'm Don Tutin. I'm a faculty member in linguistics in Spanish and Portuguese. Um, I do a lot of work on. Um, I focus on language change variation, and particularly in the history of Spanish and the Romance languages. And I've done a lot of work on dialect conduct and language change. But right now, I'm not forgetting that, but I'm moving into studying questions of politeness and civility and how that is negotiated through language. Um, so specifically, just simple things like pronouns of address. Uh, English has one U, but um, other languages, particularly early modern Spanish, had many, many ways of doing that. And so in early modern theater, a lot of, there are a lot of tropes, there's a lot of play with this. And when you translate it into English, a lot of it, I just think it's erased, right? Um, so, or, or you have to find other means to index some of those suggested meanings. So that's, that's great. 
Yeah, we spend a lot of time on, so an entrance beat or a greeting beat in a play is considered a significant event. So the way in which people greet each other, and like right, we were just all joking about how we're greeting each other now. It's just very unique. It's changed a little bit. So um, we kind of have a little bit of an outline um, and a plan of how we're going to proceed, but at the same time we want this to be a discussion. So feel free to jump in at any time and add your thoughts and um, ask questions. So the first thing that we wanted to do was to define how uh, we see dialect and accent um, in our fields and how we've been working with that. Do you guys want to go first? Sure. You want to start? Yeah. Um, so in our, in our field, I'll, I'll start from there rather than from a teaching perspective. Um, so a, a playwright has written a play, and this playwright, as they're writing it, perhaps has a, a dialect in mind or there's a location, right? Um, and so then the actor's job is to do what our playwright has prescribed for us and uh, to the best of our abilities. So oftentimes, even through a casting process, you'll be asked whether or not you're proficient in uh, the specific dialect that they're looking for. A very common thing that actors do is lie <laughs> about their proficiency in this dialect. It happens a lot as somebody who's been on both sides of a casting table. It happens a lot. But then you get right in there that night and you, and learn you go, it as fast as okay, you I'm going to learn this as fast as I can. And we have many different tools uh, on how we might go about learning that. Also, with a lot of productions, um, most of the time there will be, if it is a tricky dialect and if it's something that several people are going to have to speak, there'll be something called a dialect coach as a part of the process. And what that dialect coach is there to do is to make sure that everybody's in the same world generally for this for this dialect, right? That, okay, say we've got a northern English dialect, well, we want to make sure that we're in the right town of this northern English dialect and not, you know... 50 miles apart, so to say. So um, there's many, many different processes and, and so many people, different acting schools will have lots of different ways of an in. But for the most part, they will deal with sound substitutions. It will also deal with a bit of cultural aspects um, that, that have defined the dialect. Um, and then it really just takes a, a whole lot of practice so that it becomes uh, that it be becomes quite innate rather than something that you've learned. So one thing I always try to do is take my take my dialect for a walk and go and order a coffee or you know spend an afternoon at lunch speaking purely in that dialect so that I'm not just learning the words that are written out by my playwright but also learning how to fully integrate it into myself. So I think our basic definition is actually surprisingly similar, we found. And um, so, there, you know, the two words that get tossed around are accent and dialect. And um, I was, you know, it's exciting to realize that we really think of it the same way, that we're learning about the mechanics, we're learning about the sound substitutions, but we're also learning about the grammar, especially like playwrights are specifically focused on the way in which the language is constructed. Um, the actor maybe gets a little bit more focused on how it actually sounds, but then all of that in context of the uh, culture that, the, that these 
in our case, fictional characters are being placed in. So um, it, within, so it's it's speaking, but within circumstances and within geography and within community. Um, so, is that what do you want to say about that? Oh, I have lots to say about that. <laughs> um, so I'm a sociolinguist. I study the um, history, the development, and the contemporary situation of dialects in the United States and, and well, English overall, but primarily in the U.S. is what I focus on. Um, so I have very specific definitions of dialect and accent, so I'll share some of that and kind of pull it apart. Um, and all of this is based on a fundamental f fact of linguistics. We don't know a lot about language. We're still learning a lot. But we know that every language at any point in time changes. It doesn't matter where it is, who's speaking it. It's always going to change over a period of time. Um, the kind of view of that or the aftermath of that can be different types of ver uh, varieties of English. Mm -hmm. So why do folks in England versus America speak differently? It's because you took this form of language, you moved it to a different place, and then time happened. And people started interacting with different types of people. Um, and the language continued to change in different places at different times in different ways. And so that kind of after effect or as that change that is happening, as we see it happening at, a one, at one particular time, we can refer to as a dialect in terms of how a language is spoken um, in a particular place or among a particular group of people. So it's a shared systematic form um, that includes a grammar, a vocabulary, um, a set of sounds that goes along with it that can differ slightly or differ pretty drastically among people. So I define dialect as a variety of language that's associated with a particular um, geographic region or social group. So we can talk about American English, we can talk about Southern American English, we can talk about North Georgia English, we could talk about Atlanta English, we can talk about Decatur English, we can talk about Emory English. Um, we can go smaller and smaller depending on what kinds of differences that we're looking at. Um, for me, accent is a part of that. Accent references the um, sound system of that particular form. So when I talk about a southern accent versus a Boston accent, it's just a part of those particular dialects. Um, when you want to get really further into it, we can say why all of this is a continuum and they don't really exist anyway, but you know that's a fun discussion <laughs> later. Um, and then we can even go further down into the idea of looking at the language use of one particular person. So the different languages people speak, the different dialects people speak, and the repertoire that they have available to them. Um, the one thing that I love to be able to get my students to understand is that because we're talking about a grammar and a sound system and a vocabulary and a variety of language, if you are speaking, you are speaking a dialect of some language. Mm -hmm. um, and regardless if it's standard or non-standard, prestigious or stigmatized, everybody who speaks a dialect usually more than one, and everybody has an accent. And um, playing with that a little bit at Emory has been a lot of fun. Because people are like, I don't have an accent. I'm like, oh, you do. <laughs> Is that generally the, the perception that students will take? Yes. That I don't have. Uh -huh. Because, uh, well, depends what they speak. Sure. So you also, so I did my graduate work at the University of Georgia, and it was a very common thing for students, especially first-year students, to come up to professors and say, I hope you won't grade me down because I have a southern accent. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
you know, that just pains me. And it's like, okay, come take my class and we'll talk all about that. But I also know somebody who was told that they shouldn't be in the journalism school anymore because they have a southern accent and they're never going to make it. So, you know, this is a real part of people's lives. Um, And the fact that all of our students have done really, really well in their English grammar classes, and we associate the idea of accent with other. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, oh, well, they just, they have an accent. They have a southern accent. They have a whatever accent, a New York accent. Seen um, is oftentimes used... Sometimes pejoratively, but in generally in reference to something else besides a standard form. And they're really proud of the fact that they have that. And so oftentimes folks say, like, I don't have an accent, but those people do. Mm -hmm. Instead of just seeing it as a a part of the human condition. Um, So it's empowering to get people, mm -hmm. especially those that come in speaking or with backgrounds with maybe stigmatized dialects or stigmatized Mm -hmm. accents that... um, for them to realize that this is just a difference and not a deficiency in who they are and how, where they come from. Right. Yeah, and so for us, it's a really a tool of ex- of um, expression of a world of play or of a character or a way to define relationships. So a playwright, like I was in a production of a, a Irish play called Dance in Itlunisa not too long ago, several years ago, and there was five sisters, and it was really about their relationship between the five of them. So first of all, you've got to figure out like why is it's set in a small remote place? It all happens inside this house. Um, so you know you you got to learn that as much as you can from the linguists. We'll have um, material that we can use to try to learn that just that community dialect, mm-hmm. and then understand why the playwright might have made that choice. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by it's a tool that the playwright's using. So. Um, he, in this case, you know, was looking for a closed society. He was looking for a, some people that were isolated um, in a group, but that they were isolated. So he made this particular choice. So then we have to learn that dialect. But then as you also go more and more specific down to a Decatur dialect, we continue to do that too, because otherwise you just start with stereotype. Mm-hmm. It's, you're just yeah. stereotyping people. And you're not, it's not about then revealing character, revealing mm-hmm. something. It's about judging. Um, and so, you know, our goal, we're playing an individual character. We have some specific issues we have to deal with because the audience has to be able to understand it. So we always have to make selections and choices. Um, but then we're trying to figure out how this person speaks so that the dialect becomes really a base mm-hmm. for um, cho- very specific choice making. And it can be a shorthand to, I mean, sometimes this is where that stereotype can come in well for a playwright, mm-hmm. yeah. um, where... You, you don't have to say necessarily who this person is, where they're from, because their voice will explain it for them. Of course, that assumes that it's recognizable to the audience that's presented there. Right, and that's like we have a couple of translators in the room, and that's one of the cool things about translating for the theater is that there's so many tools mm-hmm. available in the live performance beyond the written word. You know, there's actors and there's space and there's all kinds of tones of voice that you that are hard to capture in the written word, but that could be solved for a translator's issues that they're dealing with. I can't figure out a way to get this into it. Well maybe there's a way that the that the product the production, yeah. the performer, the director, the designer, somebody can take care of that aspect of it. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we kind of already started uh, segueing just a little bit into the application of, of it in our field. So like yeah. why is 
the study of dialect important? Like, what's what's why is it important in your field? Like, why do you take the time to learn it, and then how do you teach it? Okay, <coughs> so background. Um, my family's from New Jersey. We moved to Georgia when I was four. We went back home, and people would like, say, y'all. <laughs> and I'm like, y'all, yeah, whatever, y'all are weird, what's going on? Um, and they're like, oh, he, 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 laugh. So the idea of language as a part of someone's experience and background was always there. My friends would come over and be like, oh my God, your mother is from New Jersey. I was like, yeah, she just got off the phone with her mom. She's going to sound like that for a couple hours. Um, even more extreme. So for me, it was a thing that was around, and when I realized I could really delve into it and find out more about it and how it was just a, a part of people's experiences. Um, I love learning other languages, and I'm really, really bad at it. <laughs> so when I found that I could study linguistics and talk about all languages, it made me really, really happy. Like I, I started understanding by pulling apart the structure and I just, uh, of what languages and how it moves. Um, and just over time, I started drifting more and more towards the, the sociocultural aspects about what language is for a person, um, you know, and lots of experiences of people saying stuff about, like, me being Southern. Um, in terms, so that's how I really started looking into this as an act, as a possible career. It's just like, things I thought about. I'm like, oh, I can get paid to do this? Yay! Um, I can write about it? Awesome. So in terms of classes and how I teach about this stuff, um, it's pr this is everything I do. Um, the, I teach a Linguistics 101. It's called History of the American Languages. It is a class on um, diversity in the, linguistic diversity in the United States. So American dialects, immigrate, immigrant languages, um, how language a part, plays a part of who we are as individuals and as a nation. Um, right now I'm teaching a class on language prejudice, which is a hard class to, to handle sometimes, mm -hmm. um, and really going into not just the stigma, but you know legal forms of discrimination that are based on language use, where we talk about things like if you can prove that somebody was discriminated against because they had an accent that showed that they were a non-native speaker of English and that they were an immigrant to the United States and they were passed up for promotion, um, then may, maybe you can have a court case based on that. Mm -hmm. um, or somebody that speaks African-American English isn't hired because of the way they speak. If you can connect it to racial dis discrimination, you can maybe bring it to court there. Um, if I was discriminated against because I had a Southern accent, um, there's nothing I can do legally. That, that's perfectly fine in the legal system in the United States. So we talk about issues like that. So how, not only what, so I teach about not only what accents are, but the roles that they play in our lives and also in society as a whole and how that can be a, a key factor. I also teach health communication and for me that comes in. Did you have a... Um, I'm wondering if you thoughts about how the internet has sort of played a role in the fluidity of the passing around of different accents and yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that's happening um, in that people learn the language and speak the language of their community. What happens with the internet is you now can define your community as much, much broader. 
Um, so it's who are you interacting with? And there has to be interaction. You know, I can sit and watch a thousand videos of people from Birmingham, England. I'm not going to come away with a Birmingham dialect. Um, but if I start interacting with people on a pretty regular basis, then some of that would influence how, how I speak. So it's, it's not making folks homogenous in terms of how they speak, but um, it gives people access to dialects that they wouldn't necessarily work with. And in terms of um, film and theater, it actually allows you to use broader possibilities because they're more used to hearing say like British dialects or things but um it it also just spreads things as as change happens especially among like teenagers you know all of a sudden somebody uses it and millions of people can hear it immediately yeah when I was in graduate school which is a long time ago we used to call up when we were trying to figure out a dialect we'd call up the 911 operator or somebody not 911 but some kind of like four it was 411 when you call and get a number you used to be able to call and get a number (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then you could like in that area and then often you could hear a little bit of their dialect that way because we didn't have we didn't have Google right we just had books in the library and they were only so helpful in terms of that so that exposure piece or that access to um, tools is really that's it's been changed. really important for us yeah. yeah and there's there's an immense amount of resources now um, whenever I'm working on a dialect or a dialect coaching uh, show, there's a there's this incredible resource called Idea. Mm-hmm. It's idea.com. Um, and it's it's just a resource of dialects from all over the world. All sorts it will it will define the age of the person um, from their recording. It will define gender. where they're from gender, socioeconomic status, education. All of these different factors. And even their geographic history. So yes. IDEA stands for International Dialects of English Archive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, they'll be like, okay, this is a this is an 80-year-old man who spent 15 years uh, in the United States. But he lives, he's born and now lives in, you know, Bristol or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Which sometimes can be quite frustrating. You're like, I'm just looking for the pure, just right. But nobody, nobody has that. We live because it doesn't exist, right? That's a big change too, because people's accents are, of course, influenced by that exposure, Um, and so it's really changed. We were talking the other day that it would be really interesting because you were talking a lot about evolution of language, and I think somebody else was talking about that as an interest too. Um, that that's something that we we could really benefit by some of that knowledge because you're like, oh yeah, so if you had like different generations, one of the ways you could work with that is to make a choice about a slightly different dialect because the if the if there's some amount of change that's happened. And yeah. it, it's very interesting working. I did a play last year in which um, it was it was a Geordie accent, so uh, a very specific uh, Northern England. Uh, dialect, and there it was set in the spanning from the 30s essentially into the mid 40s, and so we had we had to consider that of course right like like the Geordie accent now is not at all what what it was then right we also need an audience of Atlanta theater goers <laughs> to understand everything we're saying so we also can't keep it as pure as it was in the 30s and 40s because. Otherwise, they'd walk away wondering what the hell they just watched. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it can be really tricky in that sense. There's a lot to balance in the authenticity of it versus also the, the performance aspect of it. 
Snake. My favorite example of that from film is the movie Gladiator, <laughs> where you have Russell Crowe, <laughs> who is born... He may not have the best ear. No, he doesn't have the best ear. <laughs> well, so he's born in New Zealand, raised in Australia, playing a Spaniard in ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, a standard British pronunciation is what the director asked for. And he went... But shouldn't I? He's like, no, go with it. That's what people will hear. It's yeah. foreign enough, yep. but people would still be able to understand yep. it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so there are a lot of things like that. Um, I'm thinking that when you take on a you, you it's embodied. It's not mm -hmm. just the voice. Mm -hmm. it's, it, you take on a whole body mm -hmm. of how of being in the world, whether it's age or gender mm -hmm. or location. And I'm thinking about that as a pedagogical tool, mm -hmm. like. Um, for building connections, for building empathy, for building understanding, um, and building some kind of historical consciousness. So have you ever used it that way in your classes? We've we talked some, that. we do all the time, but we've talked some about this is a really different pedagogical approach mm -hmm. that we have. So we use speaking aloud, improving in the dialect. Yeah. Of course, we study, we, we both use the International Phonetic Alphabet, we both use similar archives, we have a lot of the same source material that we're working <laughs> with. But we are putting it in our voices and our bodies. And the of course, application is, very application is really important because, of course, we have to, have to present it. And so that's one of the questions we've had is, is there a, is there a place in, in linguistics education for that? And I think there are some dangers, right? Yeah, we're, um, yeah, so this is what we were talking about, the idea of, I mean, I have students talk about all sorts of dialects. I don't have them learn them. Right. Um, I'm not asking them to produce them for me. Now I can, when we do the International Phonetic Alphabet, I might need them to hear the difference, if not you know, be able to make the difference to the extent that they can with certain sounds that they're not used to. Um, but I generally don't say, all right, we're talking about African-American English. Everybody go. Like, speak, because, yeah, I mean, exactly, right, the, your, that your response was like, exactly oh, that could be really bad. That Even though be. I'm not saying, you know, we just spent three days on the actual structure of specific dialects of African-American English with, like, really intensely nuanced grammatical systems. They have that, but it's still the, this could go wrong really quickly. Well, and we have the same taboo. We would not cast a white actor in an African-American role without, we would never do that in the current culture that we all live in. That would, that would be, it's taboo for us too. But it might be different if it was like not, it was a dialect that didn't have the same um, cultural yeah. uh, flashpoints. Yeah. But at the same time, I do know folks that that is their area of expertise, that they say, if you're studying this, you should be able to speak, like you should try to learn to speak it and take that on, that embodiment mm -hmm. of what does it feel like to be a speaker mm -hmm. of whatever dialect we're looking at. Well, there's a lot you learn from speaking about a thing, the kind of yeah. internal experience of it gives you different information. And that's one of the things we're kind of interested in. What are the different kinds of information that people get from these different kind of pedagogical styles? And would there be a way that they could each benefit from the other? Which I think is a little bit of what you're asking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it, it's interesting as well because I think... Um, from an acting standpoint, you know, I think we've already mentioned several times about the ear, right? Training, training the ear. And some people have that natural ability. They can just, they can hear things and then replicate it. A lot of people don't, or a lot of people have to work very hard at that. Uh, for me, I think uh, 
the embody that's where the embodiment really comes in focusing on what can i do physically to my mouth you know is this an is this a dialect in which i have to keep my jaw quite that stiff upper lip or where's the placement in my mouth right how does that live in the body right there's there's so many things that you can do if the ear isn't necessarily on your side and um I can imagine how that, you know, would be a little bit different, a, a very different kind of tool for in your classroom yeah. versus ours, but, where they're already so used to being very physical. Yeah. But yeah, I can see it in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Though. Right. Sorry, you've been very patient. Yeah, <laughs> so you said something before, uh, you said the word improv, and earlier you said taking the dialect or the accent for a walk. For a walk. Yeah. yeah. And that's very interesting to me because, you know, you have this text and you can study the individual words and how they are pronounced. But how do you then apply that to words that are not in the text? Yeah. And I'm particularly interested in do you do you think that um, it's a pattern in the sense that you maybe learn the word from a recording and then put it in and or I know it's probably both, but is it that you study particular phonetic rules that you then are able to apply to words that you may have not he heard in that accent? Yeah, yes, that's one of the things that's very, that we do. So we use the International Phonetic Alphabet to understand what the pattern sound substitutions are. Uh -huh. um, so like when I played Eliza Doolittle in, in, in Pygmalion, you know, there's a, I mean, that's a very, very, very difficult, the Cockney dialect purely is very difficult to understand, but there's some very clear patterns, mm -hmm. you know, the dropping of the H's in, in Reagan's or whatever, you know. So we learn those patterns, and then once you get used to those Drop patterns. Another, I would call that a rule. Isn't that a rule? Yeah. Yes. So, um, I mean... Yeah. So, because you can use it on something that's that you haven't heard. Exactly, right? yeah. So wouldn't that, that would be a rule then, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of this, oh, like, okay. oh, yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. It's just because I'm interested in that. It's all language yeah. structured. You can write out, I can write out rules and rules and rules and rules that say, here, this is what the, on paper, this is what the language sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then you can apply that in every way yeah. with the understanding that not everybody sounds exactly the same way all the time. Right. Yeah, and then we also listen for the musicality of the language, mm -hmm. like the cadence of it. Um, you know, so American is a very, you know, we're very monotone. Most of, most of yes. us are very monotone. We use very much pitch variation. Or the British use a lot more pitch variation in their speaking, Lock. right? So we listen for, or the Irish almost kind of whistle their sound. So we, we listen for the musicality of it. And then as Caitlin says, we also look for whatever the physical, you know, so Germans tend to gather their lips a little bit. I mean, people do different things, as you all know, with their, with their physical structure. So we, we look for that as well. So those are the kind of the ways into learning it. And then when you start, you know, you are, it is pretty stereotypical. That's why we re have to rehearse for three or four weeks. You know, you can't just do this in, in a day because yeah. at the beginning you're just hearing the, the, most, the most overall sense of what it's like and what it feels like. But through practice, and that's why you take it for a walk, you start to be able to then... Uh, generalize it into other kinds of language that aren't isn't in the text, and also make it into a fully realized person, because mm -hmm. we want to step away from that stereotype. We want this to be as real and fleshed out as we all are, mm -hmm. right? With our own specificities, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
Well, connecting with that, I'm, I'm interested in this tension between authenticity and legibility, yeah, comprehensibility yeah. by the audience. And so a lot of what we've been talking about is at the level of sound, where but it strikes me that there's a, it's a kind of difficult situation because you have a script, and there's so many other elements of variation. So, I mean, Susan's mentioned, of course, you know, the grammar, uh, lexicon, but there's also ways of using language. There's things that just probably wouldn't be said. Right. Or it wouldn't be expressed in a certain way, and and so and if you get a script and, and you start discovering this, this doesn't ring true, right? I mean, or something. Yeah. And what do you do? Well, it will very often happen when a, a production has made a decision to take, like, say, a Shakespeare play and put it. So we're using text that wasn't written, and then we're choosing to set it in some other location. And we're going to mm-hmm. use dialects that weren't native to how. It was written, yeah, and that so that very often comes up, and it is it is a it is challenging, uh, and it means a lot of choices and and decisions made and um, calibrations made to try to make it work. Um, it you know, and it can be challenging for the audience because they're both trying to understand fairly complex heightened language and listening to that through maybe what's an unfamiliar dialect. But yeah, it it is. But playwrights. Um, you know, some playwrights will actually write down, you know, the sounds they think the dot somebody was talking about that they that they think that they're hearing there. Um, but some just identify the character from where they are. But then this the the word selection or the words they're not using, then it's really their responsibility to be true to, you know, whatever the whatever it is, wherever that person's from or the kind of codes of their particular their particular individual and community language. Is that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. I have kind of a follow-up on Don's question. Mm-hmm. I think I've asked you guys this before, but there's, so you're talking about this tension between yeah. sort of authenticity and, mm-hmm. and um, sort of understandability or comprehensibility. Mm-hmm. How do you choose what features um, that you, like are the salient features of a particular accent or the ones that are easier to produce that signal a particular accent but don't either stereotype it or don't make it so incomprehensible to mm-hmm. the audience? How do you... That's where we get paid the big choice. I mean, that's the thing about uh, art, is there's no right or wrong answers here. You have to find you have to try something and see how it works. Does it bring the dramatic moment to life? Mm -hmm. Does it it fulfill the the relationship that we're trying to illuminate? Does it obscure? Does it illuminate? And then you try and you throw away and you try something else. Is that, absolutely, I think think it really, the, the you hit it on the head with choice, right? And that's that's hopefully why we've been cast, or why you know we've cast somebody else into a role is that we can we can see that they have this choice or this understanding of of this character that they're trying to embody, and it can be very tricky those moments of wow, they're I see that connection that they're having in this beautiful moment, but I can't, no one's going to understand that word. <laughs> and ultimately, that's what's important, right? You, the text, the story. So it, there, there can be some moments of tension there, but then um, ultimately, our job is to serve and tell the story. 
So as long as we're keeping that at the forefront, I think then we can say we've done a, a job well done. But uh, it, it's certainly a tension and, and one whenever I've dialect coached and, and had to take that actor's little treat away from them, that, that <laughs> word that they're taking away, you know, they're sad about it for a moment, but ultimately it's the payoff. And I think it's an area where uh, theater students could really benefit from the knowledge that linguists have because when you start to make a selection, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of different choices you could make about what to emphasize. And I think that your field could really help us make those selections in a way that had, that was considering authenticity or this, this sound substitution is really tied to, you know, whatever. If this is the most long lasting of the sound, sound substitutions or something. So you're making a selection based upon some kind of knowledge of the, the, Place that it has, and I, we, I don't think we have the that depth of knowledge. And I mean, not. so Lynn and Christina's work hits pretty closely with this: the idea of perception and what what really are salient, you know, the most salient salient features mm -hmm. that would get that information across. When, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say. Um, so one of the things I haven't mentioned yet is that when I was in grad school, I went to Hollywood. And I apprenticed with a dialect coach for a summer. I forgot that. Was, I was fancy for a summer, um, and it was You're really still fancy. I, um, I it was really interesting watching how people wanted to learn different dialects. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't working on a particular set at the time. We were just kind of working with people kind of that that wanted to either work on something that was coming up or just keep going with something that they wanted in their repertoire. But some folks just wanted to imitate. Like, no, 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 don't give me any information. I don't want, you know, nope. Give me, just yeah. repeat it back to me. And I was just like, oh, this is really hard. Like, the, the idea of stereotype hit really too hard there. But other folks, I mean, they would say, but do, what is the pattern that this follows? So going back to your question, and I was like, I would start writing out rules and saying, this is the structure of the language. We'd pull out um, IPA charts and, you know, mm -hmm. say, this is where you're placing things. And... For some folks, they really, really wanted that back, that structural background. Yeah, I was just okay. sort of thinking though, but sort of sort of thinking that what you're <laughs> doing for the stage is a kind of performance dialect. But performance dialects actually exist in real life. Yes, and people mm -hmm. invent them. So, like Okrakuk Island, there's yeah. some famous mm -hmm. studies where the the locals will sort of exaggerate certain features, the mm -hmm. hoitweeters. Uh, for tourists, yes. right? And so it's not, it's also part of our real experience with language. It's not just the stage. Absolutely. Well, the stage that's is everywhere. Yeah, yeah no, I, that's, that's All how. The world. Yeah, yeah. I, uh -huh. When we talked before, we were looking at language as performance and performance as language. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, we talk about performativity and language all yeah. the time. That's yeah. a key part. Sorry, you were. Well, I'm really oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I'm really interested what's starting to emerge is a, a, a tension between empathy and cultural appropriation. So, I mean, because uh, I'm really, one of the things I wrote about philosophy and theater was the capacity for theater to increase empathy. And, and in that context, I was mostly talking about the way in which the characters on a stage could uh, induce empathy in the audience as a given position. And you're talking about the ability of an actor to actually build empathy with a character, which is also significant. Um, but, and we're also talking about taboos, and you, you know, we're using the example of an obvious taboo, but as things get increasingly culturally sensitive, mm -hmm. somebody says, that's my dialect, you have no right to speak mm -hmm. my dialect, like, are we, I mean, it seems like there's a real tension here, I mean, the possibility of building empathy, 
I mean, obviously there's a difference between stereotyping, that's what we're trying to avoid, mm -hmm. and being sensitive to this difference, but mm -hmm. if, if even attempting to do that then becomes criticized as you know, an act of well, we are in a cultural time in our art form where there's, a, you know, rightly so, there's a lot of discussion about, well, who has the right to express whose voices, right? Whether that's writing it or performing it, and that, you know, that's a really important discussion. But at the same time, we're in a field where the basic tenet of it is that somebody's not the person, they're playing a fictional character, they are not that person. So, you know, if we're in it and I'm supposed to, you're supposed to be related, we're not related, no. but there's this idea of pretense, you know, and this yeah. has been a problem, this particular issue, but, you know, there was times when actors couldn't be put into uh, church cemeteries because they're liars. You know, so this is a long-standing complication, but this is the current, this is a really current and concerning, I mean, I'm concerned about this at the same time, like, there isn't, there, there are really, there is a tension there that I think is really um, potent and important. I agree, yeah. and, and I think just from what I've experienced um, working professionally is the more that this is brought up in the beginning and laid out on the table and, you know, discussed in depth with, with professionals and people who, who really study these things. So bringing on a, a dialect coach for something whose, whose sole job is to really try and take care of that. Mm -hmm. Having that in mind from the first day of casting is also very important, right? Um, having also in mind of, of what the community is and, and what their concerns might be early on while choosing a season, right? So you can keep dialing it back and back and back further. And I think the more that theater communities and audiences do that, then the more we're setting ourselves up for success and to try and really, um, to bring it back to these, to the pure reason of creating empathy, right? And one of the interesting things to kind of jump on there too is that, that when we're back to the idea of the speaking aloud, embodying the dialect, um, one of the things, one of the magic things about um, acting is that um, when you're behaving and you make one small change, speak a little bit differently, you hold your hand a little bit differently, you introduce a little bit of whatever, put on a different costume, you do change, you do transform with that. We all know that. We put on our nice clothes and we, we, we're different. We yeah. think differently. We are different. And so that is a beauty, I think, and it's a magic thing, a wonderful part of it about this ability for a person's identity to be a little less set than we tend to think it is, right? So I can, um, my thinking, my, my very impulses, my way of seeing things can change a little bit simply by, you know, um, tucking my chin a little bit and I all of a sudden will have different relationships. And so um, the identity, we think of it as this thing that is very set and yet our, our whole experience is that actually it's not quite as set as, as, uh... You make me think of the use of, like, trauma therapy. Yes, right. right. I mean, Absolutely. That, that it, it becomes so important to take on a different role or the mm -hmm. role of the person that you're, you know, angry at and not mm -hmm. understanding. And, I mean, it seems like, yeah, a delicate mm -hmm. line, line to walk, but it's, it's just really important. Yes. 
It's a very subjective or point of view, right? Like you're looking at something from kind of inside of it. So it's a different point of view on something. But if we're culturally limiting whose voices we're allowed to do that with, yes. we're limiting everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're I think so. blocking the very thing we want to be producing. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I think there's also like a main difference. If, you know, being able to take the context of something, right? Is it... If it's something that's like actually racist and caricaturing in a very negative way, then we shouldn't be doing it. Especially a lot of the historical yeah, playwrights exactly. and stuff that have very racist undertones, you know, how yeah. do we create it for a modern age audience? Mm-hmm. Right? Or and should we? Or, should or do we, we need to? Really What's right? Yeah, no, I think you're right, that you have to constantly be checking it, though. It's like, well, what are we doing this for? But I think your point is that we are what is passable and what's culturally appropriate, and the probation of certain things is sort of evolving over time, and it's just something we have to grapple with. (laughs) And and, and in this case, there's this fundamental tension between the very craft, which is to represent someone you are not, and then there's this cultural move to you may never represent someone you are not. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's this tension I think there that is, is it must be very delicate. But oh, I'm sorry. Don't but I'm just kind of what sometimes the the question of I mean appropriation I think is a really important issue. But it seems to me sometimes particularly with language, um, and I'm thinking of hip hop culture and it being taken up certain features being taken up to do different kinds of social work. Mm-hmm. And so I'm also sort of wondering to I, I just live with the doubt. To what extent is that? Is that appropriation if it's if there is a selection of features and they're doing something different? Although their value is dependent on some kind of connection with the, the source mm-hmm. varieties, um, I, I and I'll say I don't have an answer, and right. I, and I'm very sensitive to it myself. But I, I I was like, is it still the same thing if it's not doing the same kind of social mm-hmm. and cultural work? Well, and, and that seems to be the living question right now. Right? Like, I don't think there is like a board of what is appropriation. It depends on what social media at this point gets angry about, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden that becomes appropriate. So it seems like what is and is not appropriation is actually a living, yeah. changing mm-hmm. thing, too. So mm-hmm. I think about this in teaching, even. Like, I do a code switch. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Right, and, and then I think, I'm like, okay, is this okay or not to do, right? If I'm speaking to a of inner city kids, I, I, I'm aware of doing it a certain kind of code switch in which I speak the way that I know that they speak, that I, or at least I would speak to my own peers, right, versus if I'm speaking to an audience of neuroscientists or whatever, and um, and is it okay? Sometimes yeah. I'm like, and I and I do certain things, like I will wear sort of more casual urban style clothing, like these are very uh, things that I do, you know, consciously, yes. but is Well, I think it's back to what you were saying about people's own personal dialect Mm -hmm. changes, like in exposure to other people. It is kind of part of being human. We pick up things from each other, and that—that's a good thing, I think. You know, I think it's why we still want to meet in a a live group, and we still want to. Absolutely, and so I teach a, um, a a voice and diction course, and of course it's focused towards actors, but we end up getting about half actors and half students from business school who are worried about giving presentations. <laughs> and what's great is that the, one of the, on the very, very first day, I have them write about what their vocal history is, what, what, what makes their voice 
their voice, what, and that includes their background, all sorts of different things. And they're all, all incredibly aware of this idea of, of code switching, of having a parent from another country being raised in this one, and how has that affected their, their ear, their sound, their everything. And, and I think what I love about it is that they're all incredibly aware of it. They just don't have the vocabulary of how to describe it. And uh, send them to me. Exactly. We start to tease that apart, you know. And, and as actors, I, what I try to do throughout the course is something that I like to call the, the blank canvas, trying to remove little bits of yourself so that we can then slap a, slap a character onto it. And then you bring little bits of yourself into that character, right? Of course, it's impossible to come to a completely blank canvas. We can't erase ourselves completely, but we can try to strip ourselves of our own little specificities, idiosyncrasies, and, um, and then start to bring in these other elements of character. Of course, dialect being a very big one. And uh, it, it's just lovely to try and watch that transformation. Um, but this is why we started having this conversation to begin with. Like, what can we do uh -huh. to help each other, help ourselves, help our students? You know, is there something that we could do, like a sidecar course or something like that, where, you know, as you're talking about that, I could be giving the vocabulary yes. for people to, to be working with that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we kind of started some of these discussions of what is possible. Do you have a question? So in terms of what, the, what you're getting across to the audience or what the audience understands, it seems very important to understand what the audience's knowledge of the dialects are and what their um, perception uh, is going to be, for instance, if there's inappropriate appropriation or if it's just mm -hmm. some kind of representation that's yep. politically correct. Um, my question is, how do you know what the audience comes to you with? What is, and how do you know whether you have common ground on that? And presuming that most audiences are going to be somewhat heterogeneous, do you have ways of framing your utterances so that they see it the, the way you intend them to see it? Not framing in the sense of, here's how you should see this. No. Um, like, like tell the playbook it. doesn't tell them, like, this, this play is written this way, you know, you will see so-and-so speak this kind of a dialect. This is not intended as no. insult. This is, this is the reason we're doing this. Like, you know, you have those notes, notes in museums or, you know. Mm -hmm. so we don't. You don't do that? We don't. And I'm just trying to think of why, how to explain why we don't do that. Because we want what's presented... Um, to be taken as reality. To, to be to be the thing. Mm -hmm. We want to put it all in there. So if we're going to make an adjustment like that, we need to make it in the choices that we're making and the way in which we perform it. Um, and that can happen through selection of rehearsals. I mean, we're a te we work in a big group. So we're not just one, you know, it's not just one person making all these decisions. But um, uh, we're, we're going to make selections. Um, we have, you have to know your audience to some degree, and that can mean a lot of different things. You know, that can mean, oh, we can only do big American musicals because that's all they're interested in. Like it can be those kind of choices, but it can also be, you know, this is a, this is a, we're in an area where they're not used to hearing a lot of different dialects, so we probably are going to do a much milder dialect, right? Mm -hmm. So that the understandability is still there. We don't want it to become a barrier because the whole point is for them to see this character come there, to life. There are also some practical things, right? Sure. If, a, if a dialect is quite close and the mouth has to be quite clipped, 
I'm not going to be able to be heard all the way in the back of a 500-seat theater. That's just not going to happen unless I open my mouth and allow my body to, to support the, the projection of sound. So sometimes that has to be taken into consideration as well, just a purely practical thing of, wow, this might be quite closed and clipped and something like this. They're not going to hear that back there. So I have, to, I have to make certain vowels bigger. I have to use the tools I have to make myself be heard. And then we also make adjustments second to second. So tonight's <laughs> audience is different than last night's audience. This one didn't isn't getting the jokes, right? So right. that probably means, you know, like I gotta figure out, like, did I not set it up? Do I need to slow down? You know, and we just that's a kind of that's part of what you learn for doing it, but also what you learned night to night. So there are a lot of adjustments that get made to the audience. So I don't think it's so much of a statement of understanding as it is a search for connection that guides those choices because really ultimately we want the story or the moment to be to have its impact on the audience and we can tell often if it's yeah. not besides people storming out but we can also <laughs> just tell if it's, if, it's, yes. if it's not if it's not landing right so we might need that's why we do previews because we might need to make yep. adjustments right I mean, one just I'm going to interrupt. We've hit an hour. Right? Wow. But yes, I know. I'm a little bit. But if you guys are willing to stay a little bit longer, we could continue the discussion. But I wanted to let yeah. anybody who had to go ahead and leave, folks have, you know, done that. But I just wanted. And also to thank you guys yes. before we all start scattering. We're really interested in this topic, and there may be other fields or other people's work. We're really interested in exploring this in terms of where it could live in our pedagogy at Emory. So if you're working on something or you're interested in something, we'd love to uh, have you join our conversation. Yeah. 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 And so definitely continue to, re we've recorded this and it'll be posted as a podcast, so if you want to share it with students or others that are interested. But I think we could continue the conversation if you if all you are, you know, to. we yeah. have, yeah. have to be great. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. We're here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm curious to hear your take on all of these, what it is that makes a performer better or worse at adopting a dialect. And I'm thinking in the realm of cognitive psychology, I can think mm. of some possibilities about some individuals having um, you know, a better tuned ear, as you mm -hmm. alluded to earlier. Some folks might have more flexibility and control in their um, the way they, they move their articulatory. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. So, so but, but from an acting point of view, what is it that makes somebody better I just want to say one thing, and then I want you to address that. Do you mind? Yeah, please. But but our our dialect, the way we speak, is extremely intimate. Yes. So uh, it's very personal, and so when people when you make a change to it, like when you're trying to neutralize mm -hmm. somebody's dialect because they have a whatever a lisp or something like that, you're trying to get them to have. It can be very emotional <laughs> for them. So that I think is one of the factors. You know, we call it the mother tongue, right? Like. The way we speak is really, it's re we don't uh, quite understand, I think, ourselves how much it is part of how we understand ourselves in the world. So that's one thing I think. I and I have to second and third that. I mean, it is, it is an incredibly delicate process that's involved in the course that I teach and takes a lot 
of trust and vulnerability, uh, cultivating a lot of trust and vulnerability in the classroom in order to start to get to that point of, of addressing elements of their own personal dialects. It, it, it is a very delicate process. Um, but to speak more specifically to your question, it's tough. I've worked, um, it's tough. I've worked with a lot of different actors who, I mean, we are all so individual, right? And, and there is not one way to approach it. I think that's the most important thing, is that in, uh, in these disciplines, there, is, there are so many ways to approach it. For some actors I've worked with, IPA, learning that alphabet, they go in, they completely, um, they completely translate their entire script. That's really and that <laughs> really works for them. They're, those are people who can read it and speak it, and they have an absolute fluency with that. For others, some have really amazing ears. I just They'll hear it, they'll hear the sound substitutions, and they'll be able to start flowing with it. They might need some reminders here and there, but generally that might be it. For some, it's that articulation placement, really getting inside the mouth and figuring out where it's placed. There are so many ways to approach it. So I think that... Um, and most people use all of them. And most, yeah, exactly. But I think what's helpful is the people who are better at catching on to it have a lot of these tools under their belt. They have a lot of familiarity with IPA. They have trained their ears for a long time. They have a very acute awareness of what's going on in their mouth and in the rest of their you know, body. So that's what I think. The, the people who are better at it, they just they have more tools. I want to add to that, yeah. please. So uh, what I think is so interesting about this is that, of course, speaking is so overlearned, right? That you've said the same thing so many times in this particular way, mm. right? So the, the, the fact that you are asked to change it uh, relies on this error you know, error process, and now you're supposed to say something different, and then you're supposed to perceive what you just said, and then compare it to this new sound you're supposed mm -hmm. to do. And Practice. we just and then get to the point where you don't even notice it anymore. Right. Yeah, exactly. right, exactly. Yeah. But we just read a study uh, on on errors in in piano performance, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, there's an error negativity in the EEG that that comes before you press the wrong key. Huh, yep. But it's not early enough that you can stop yourself from yep. pressing the key, right? However, the, the wrong notes in the study, you press them not quite as hard as the, <laughs> the right key. ones. So you do know it's wrong, but you still don't have enough <laughs> to actively stop it. And you wonder if And we have that same thing with, with like, Forgetting a line one, or right. getting it wrong. Once you got it wrong five times, it takes oh. a tremendous right. amount of will and practice and consciousness to be able to correct it. But you also would think that this has something to do with lear learning an accent. That you 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 you're hearing, you're trying to hear yourself say it the different way, but but it's so overlearned the other way that it it takes maybe it includes initially a very conscious effort mm -hmm. and then effort. you know as we know from from motor learning you know repetition 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 until you mm -hmm. finally don't have to think about it mm -hmm. right? well it is motor learning i mean do you find that with your students too in terms of i mean can you speak to that in terms of how they're learning it or being able to hear it or i mean do you find different 
people have different difficulties? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, it depends on their linguistic background. And, I mean, for my classes, because we're not, I don't teach a phonetics class. Mm-hmm. I don't teach, like, if I was teaching an acoustic phonetics class where they actually had to be able to mimic all of these sounds, mm-hmm. uh, or produce them, I should say. Um, for me, it's, it's less of an issue just because we don't go that far yeah. into it in my particular classes. But, yeah, some people just can't hear it. And in some cases, that's when I say... IPA is your friend because at least you can recognize when mm-hmm. I use this symbol versus this symbol. Mm-hmm. You might not hear the difference between those two speech mm-hmm. sounds, but um, you recognize that somebody can pro- is producing separate sounds that mm-hmm. you're just aren't, aren't able to process in the same way. And a lot of it is 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 also around listening, you know. And I think we this comes up. We were talking about this other day about uh, faculty who speak English with a non English dialect students report tremendous difficulty in in understanding what they're saying and I've listened to quite a few because I often get asked to come and work with those people to try to but it's often not that the dialect is that difficult to understand but there's some kind of distancing that happens where people feel like they can't like math can be that way for people I don't I don't get math so then you can't you know you don't even try right so there's something the othering or something that is yes. in the way of understanding mm-hmm. that person's what that person is trying to say. Now there may be like I usually try to work with them on is like, oh well, you probably need to. Good speech will go a long way. It's like you need to slow down a little bit and finish your sentences and change your variety. You know things that you know would be good for anybody to learn to do. But uh, it's interesting how difficult it is for people to hear differences and my guess is it's a very similar mechanism that we find when it's difficult to acquire them. Do you, do you agree or what do you think? I, I would. Yeah. Um, I mean something that you just mentioned about how listeners sometimes have a difficulty in being able to understand not potentially because of the, the acoustics of what they're hearing but because of Certain stereotypes that they're bringing to yeah. to to the to the listening process, mm-hmm. um, and there's a huge and now growing uh, literature that uh, Lou and I are hope, hoping to contribute to, um, <laughs> showing that we are very very much using our knowledge about the world when we're listening, um, mm-hmm. and in some ways I can think I think it, it might uh, help or it might in, impede, and so bringing that awareness to performers who are having to embody these characters, I think, uh, is, is a crucial part of mm-hmm. being able to adopt it. Yes. Um, and so I think I wonder if, you know, having explicit training or a- awareness of this ability for our knowledge to affect how we speak and how we hear um, is part, is that part of becoming, or training to become an Yes. That might be a very naive question. It is, although I think not maybe in the context that you're giving it, which I think is really important, and I think it is one of those things that could really, be. it's beyond a mechanical process, and it's, it's trying, I mean, we're interested in psychology, too, from a, you know, different way, but I mean, that's our, we're, that's exactly what we're interested in, but, but having the context that you're bringing to it is, I think, would be could be really beneficial to the learning process and also to the just uh, like these these other issues we're talking about about stereotyping or you know judging you know judging others and those kind of things and one of the things that I found fascinating about the the title and the the folks who are involved in this discussion was 
that um, it seems very intuitive to me that actors should have social linguistics or linguistics mm -hmm. training because it gives you the rules to be able mm -hmm. to execute certain things and behavior. Um, but the other aspect I was thinking that I'm, I'm glad you're interested in is the psychological aspect that mm -hmm. um, we have these biases and we have to consciously try to either embrace or or uh, counter them depending on the role that we're, we're taking on. Not necessarily even in, in the mm -hmm. in the um, acting realm, but in, in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, or in Which is very similar, right? Yeah. What do you say? Of course, I'm like, of course, everybody has to take a sociolinguistics course. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, so, yes. Yeah. But I think, I think, for instance, that's a really good idea to think about, like, what would be a course that theater students or artists of all kinds, but I guess theater in particular, could take that would that would kind of extend. What, what we're doing. And CNBC can support you. <laughs> but, but one of the things that happened was when I was in Hollywood, I, I was actually horrified because, one, there were people like, I don't need to know anything about linguistics in order to do this. I'm like, all right, that's fine. But also at that time, the there were lots of tapes, because there were cassette tapes, and um, books that were, say, were um, dialect training books. Like, they were very specific shops in LA that yes. that was the focus mm -hmm. and that you would go and be like, okay, I need to do this. And they're like, well, what one are you looking for today? And somebody would be like, I'm looking for an Irish dialect. And they're like, okay, this one. And I was like, that's insane. One? And I'm like, well, yes, of course. And then there was like Southern American. I'm like, you guys are doing this so wrong. And so for a very long time, I got very turned off by that the... That is terrifying. Yeah, it was yeah. really horrible. Like, Don't I still worry, have some of those. they're probably all out of business. <laughs> they yeah, that's hard. I mean, they are because now it's now it's a, it's yeah. a I mean yeah. it's a huge industry. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, nowadays I don't think you can get away no. with making a film of any good quality <laughs> without having somebody yeah. you know of quality on the on the project whose sole job is to look after the dialects. If not, well, more I mean, there were some really good people yeah. that knew what they were yeah. doing, sure. and the dialect coach that I worked with. She would actually just have her recorder with her everywhere she went. And if she ever heard a voice she liked, she was like, I'll give you five bucks. Can I record you for a minute? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, she would do that and, like, be able so, to So, like, that I think would things. be a really interesting project for theater and linguistic students to do together is to collect mm -hmm. some dialects, analyze them, and then try to recreate. I mean, I think it could be a really interesting project to do together. And then what does this reveal about... You know, what do we just from the this? What is the structure of the language reveal? Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of so uh, psychological things are going on? What does what are we learning about both of those things from the speaking of it? Are we learning something about the psychology of this person by what it feels like to speak the way they speak? Can I yeah. tell you something? I mean, I think there, I think it could be pretty exciting. Yeah. There's another level of this, which is. We don't speak in single words, of course. or in single phonemes, obviously. Um, um, so my work focuses on narrative voice. How do we develop, which has nothing to do with the dialect, but how do we develop a sense of our identity through the performance of our, mm -hmm. how we talk about ourselves in terms of content and style of language. Style meaning complex is language, elaborating or detailed, not the formal. Yeah. Yes, and the code switching that we all do. Um, 
We all perform academics. Mm -hmm. yeah. Every that. academic is an actor, that's right? That's what I said. All right, I want to talk some more about that later. <laughs> so I think that's it's really interesting how those things get put together. Yeah. Right? How, because we perform our identities in much, much as we do, as you do when you take on an identity as, mm -hmm. as, as a character. It's not, except for some plays, a word or two. Usually, there's a longer string of words. Yes. <laughs> Open long monologues. So I'm really interested in how that inter intersects. Mm -hmm. Well, may I ask a specific question about that? So, if you were to improvise a dialogue mm -hmm. with a particular dialect, mm -hmm. how does those the word choices, which I think yeah. is what you're getting at. Yeah. And and stereotypes gonna be a oh, it's tough a, in this one, yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you mean you're improvising outside of your studying of that di that specific dialect at that time, just like using a generic dialect to improvise. Is that what you're suggesting? Well so so your question come and you're creating it, a whole character. Right. That's mm -hmm. the thing. And so when when you, when you have an improvisation, mm -hmm. depending, you know, it depends for your question on whether or not you've done the work of the character first yeah. or whether it's just yeah. a, you've had 2 seconds to know what the scenario is and you're just jumping into it, right? If you've developed character and you've created backstory and you know mm -hmm. quite a lot about this person's narrative, then I know that that improvisation is going to be a lot more informed by the work you've done before, right? Compared to a two-second, you know, because living as with a different person's rhythms for many hours a day, for many weeks, you do take on a different mindset. You do, like I years ago, I was doing this play where I was a, was at a comedy. We were backstage at a comedy club, and my character, for some reason, just sat there. Smoking and quipping, but never seemed to get on stage. <laughs> so it was this backstage scene, and I remember so vividly during that whole months of time, I got in my own life, I got really good at like little one-liners. <laughs> it was just because yeah. I was living. That's what I mean about I think yeah. identity is is a little is more. Yeah. We have more identities available to us then we tend to think about it. In our current time, we're so focused on our identity. So and did that also change your accent then? That particular one, yeah. She had a, She was in New York, so she had a little bit of an accent. But mostly it was, the thing I really noticed that I held on to was this ability to just, in a moment, have a funny little quip for every single thing. And people got, yeah. you know, got sick of it. Those, those <laughs> things happen all the time. It was all fun. the time. Yeah. That's what was more Yes. Yeah. In fact, actors have to learn how to step out. You, you have to learn. I mean, they, going to the bar and having a drink is one way, but it's not the healthiest no. way. Right? But you have but you, to learn to step. You've out. You've got to find a way to leave it at the theater and just remember that you're not. This is you're pretending, right? But it's but because it, you're using yourself, it's not so clear cut. I mean, you know Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan. I have this last little anecdote. <laughs> um, I, 
last last fall, I um, or two falls ago, I had to play um, a Romanian woman, and uh, and I based a lot of these. A lot of the characters had a lot of similarities to my mom, and uh, so I but brought your mom's certain. Chilean, and my mom is from oh. Chile, but she had she had this. She was a wonderful mother. This character and a, a new mom, and I I just found a lot of things that helped me. Um, through identifying things about my mom. And my mom is from Chile. And I grew up my whole life uh, doing my mom's accent. Just my whole life. Uh, she was my first character, right, that I <laughs> would put on. And I do this, uh, this, I do this play of this Romanian woman. It runs for four weeks. I get, and I, of course, am rehearsing three weeks before that. So I've lived as this woman for quite a while. And when the show was done, I was telling a story to a friend of mine about my mom and my, this friend she always says no, no no that's not how your mom would say it say it how your mom would say it and I go to talk like my mom like I've done my whole life and all of a sudden this Romanian woman's voice comes out of mouth. and I could not shake that for about two weeks every time I went to do my mom's voice it came out as this Romanian's character's voice and it was it was a really like jarring I thing are, I don't know who what your specialties are, but is there a, is there, do all, or dialects and lay, are, is there a place in the brain? Because I, I noticed this too. I, I know, like, I can always do the last dialect I worked on really well, right? And then it's hard for me to recover the one before, from before, or I start and, and all of a sudden they all sound like that. So there must be some, they must be stored in a similar... Well, that's interesting. I mean, we know where language is, in, um, but I don't know if we know enough about the neurobiology of language to know where particular dialects are. So what we do, one of our techniques is... Yeah. Yeah. We, we learn little key, key phrases. I was going to say, the hook line. We, look, we all learn a little key phrase for each dialect so that then when you can say that and, oh, you can kind of get it back again. And something must trip in your brain to, to get rid of all those other ones. I don't know. It's a well, really... I don't know, I'm just hypothesizing. If, if learning theory has to do with strengthening neural connections and the atrophying of others, maybe what happens is over a pattern of time, strengthens yeah. and then just goes into that as default. Yes. Until you practice a different mm -hmm. set. Mm -hmm. That's probably it. It's just a neuropathy. Yeah, yes. that, that's no, such a smart just, solution. That's probably it. It's what... Yeah, and it's probably kind of like being bilingual, so there is a lot of information about sort of the neuroscience of mm -hmm. um, bilingualism. So when you, when your um, lexicons or word storage areas are merged and have once proficient, you get very proficient, they seem to pull apart. Mm -hmm. Or actually, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. They start separate and then they come together. So is that depending like, on when in your life yes, you yeah, are yeah, learning yeah. those multiple accents, it's encoded differently. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And they yeah. say that that, is that why children who are raised in a bilingual house, it takes them a little longer to speak? Because they, there's, there's some things that are delayed because they have more information coming at them, but it, they eventually catch up and then they find that there may be later benefits like in cognitive flexibility because they've been basically code switching yeah. their entire sure. lives right. or certain things yep. like that. Right. So yeah, it's, and it's, it's different. This, there's a sensitive period with language acquisition, so it's different when they're learning it before a certain age than after. Mm -hmm. um, you mean the brain? The way that the brain mm -hmm. encodes a new language. But I, I think even that's debated too. Like there are definitely some mm -hmm. second language acquisition people that um, are on the camp that 
when you acquire that second language, you actually can get it to be just as proficient and the accent sounding just as native or whatever as that first um, language that you grew up with. So there's that's still. Oh yeah. Of it. Okay. But it's, yeah. yeah, I'm sure there's all the. Wow. I was just thinking of one other thing about yours because often we have actors in our classes who are not native English speakers, and one one reason they're taking the class is because they really want to work on their understandability in English, right? And so what I found is that you can't use the ear Mm-mm. because they may not, that's a sound they may not be able to hear. You have to use the, like, okay, where's your tongue and where's yeah. your... That we do know. Yeah. The, the, the phonemic sensitivity mm-hmm. is really in the first six to nine months. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's that... It, it atrophied like you have an overabundance of neurons at a certain age and then you're yeah. pruning yeah yeah i mean it's still a little bit up for grabs how exactly whether it's acquired right similarity or acquired mm-hmm. distinctiveness yeah. but yes yeah there's yeah, always, yeah there's always flexibility <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah it is it does difficult. become harder and harder to literally Definitely hear yes yeah. distinctions yeah. if you weren't exposed to them in the first yeah. i had a, a Italian friend who asked me why we had two days of the week that sounded exactly the same. <laughs> Which two? Tuesday and Thursday. Oh. Uh, <laughs> he said, you really, I was like, what do you do? He thought they sounded the, the same. same. Why yep. would you have two days of the week that sounded the same? Well, you can imagine teaching a French version the H sound, yeah. right? That yes. You would have to do, just like you said, you have to be very specific about, you know, yes. breathing out on the H. Or and, and, the you know, check. Uh, uh, <laughs> like, there are so, so many, many. yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. And, and I'm working with um, a student who grew up in the Caribbean. And just getting her, you know, she, it's also the ear, but it's even just getting them to to open her mouth more. is like she, she stopped the other day in class and looked at her peers and was like, this is how you talk? <laughs> <laughs> like this? She was just mind exploded. So that's probably another piece of it. Like it's just not... Mm-hmm. It's just not how you do it. It's just not how speech is. So it, it's hard to... It That's is. It, yeah, it, it was great. amazing. And it was truly like... Well, I, I, I saw the light like flash That's above so her. And she was like, this is weird. <laughs> and of course, she was just talking quite... She wasn't exaggerating her mouth any more than I am right now. But to her, it felt... Like if she was chewing this massive piece of gum or something, you know, it was it was so great to watch. Yeah, lovely like those moments. Well, I love thank, you all. thank you, thank you, thank you. Of course, it's a great that conversation. Was I hope it was useful. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course, it was. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, you know, it was. I really Well, I was when they went around. I was just like, this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of points. So to me, it also says that there is. Maybe we're on to. I don't know what it, it out. Class, right. also like yeah. connection. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 I, I think, think so. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. Uh, Hi. I'm Lila. Hi, 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 Lila